Emily Hanford is a senior correspondent and producer for American Public Media and the 2023 George W. Bush Institute Citation recipient for her coverage of our nation's reading crisis. She joined host Andrew Kaufman in the Bush Institute's Justine Taylor Raymond at the Forum on Leadership to discuss her reporting, how she started in journalism, and what she's uncovered about how kids learn to read. The first thing you got to do and the hardest thing to do is to break them of the bad habits of not looking carefully at the words and sounding them out because it turns out that this is how we become skilled readers. We eventually get to the point where the words aren't a problem for us, right? We just know almost all the words we see really quickly and really easily. And that's because at some point we laboriously sound them out. It can be like nails on a chalkboard listening to a little kid sound out words, but they're connecting the sounds in the word with the spelling of the word and the meaning of the word. And when those three things get connected, your brain can remember that word and it's available to you instantly. Hear more from Emily about the importance of phonics, why kids receiving quality reading instruction is essential, and what she's reading right now on The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Presidential Center. We are here at the Forum on Leadership with Emily Hanford, who today is receiving the 2023 George W. Bush Institute citation for her reporting on reading. She's a journalist with American Public Media, and her work has appeared in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, NPR, and so many others. Specifically, her work on her podcast, Sold a Story, How Teaching Kids to Read Went So Wrong, has won multiple awards, and you can listen to it at soldastory.org. Emily, thanks so much for traveling to Dallas here and spending time with us at the Forum. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. And our co-host today is Justine Taylor-Raymond, one of our experts on the Education Opportunity Team at the Bush Institute. Justine, thank you for your wisdom and expertise. Thanks for having me. Um, so you are, we just mentioned you're an award-winning podcaster. I desperately need tips. What do you, what do you got? <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't know. I've, I have, it's true that I've been a journalist for a long time and I've always been into audio and it was radio when I started and now mm-hmm. it's podcasting. And Be yourself. Be, okay. okay. Be yourself, natural. What people want in podcasting is just like, we're just talking to Authent- each other. Authenticity. We're yeah, just hanging definitely. out. Definitely. That, that, the downside of that is I might have to develop a personality at some point. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, but, but in all seriousness, you're, you, you've been a dedicated journalist for a long time now. What, what drew you to this field? Like before we start getting specifically in education, did you always know this was your path? Like, no, how did you absolutely not. Although I did go around with like a tape recorder when I was like seven years old and record <laughs> people. So I look back and realize it probably was a plan. And in fact, my grandmother had a radio show in the really? 1940s. Oh, wow. oh cool. Yeah. What kind of show? Um, it was one of those sort of morning shows where they did a lot of like drama, and but they did news and it was oh, in awesome. Waterbury, Connecticut. And um, and my uncle is uh, does sound for documentary film and my cousins are both in audio. And as I told you earlier, my brother is a pilot speaking into a microphone all the time. So <laughs> there's something in our genes. That audio is in my, your blood. But I didn't know it. I didn't really plan that I was an English major because all I really knew was I was always a good student, really liked it. Um, in fact, left college uh, halfway through my senior year. My parents couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, I don't think, um, I think I'm going to take some time off. They're like, really? really? Yeah, one semester left. But it was really because the only thing I really knew how to do was be a student. I had no mm-hmm. idea what I was going to do. Right. Then I came back to college, got my degree, took a really great narrative nonfiction writing class. Interesting. And, um, that sort of, and then got an internship at the local public radio station. And have been working in some version of public radio ever since. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Were you, uh, you talked a little bit there about your, your 
student life? Were you, a, were you a big reader growing up? I was a big reader growing up. I really was. Yeah. And that's um, getting to what we're talking about today. Learning to read was pretty easy for me. Didn't really think much about it at all. Um, loved to read as a little kid. Um, you know, it was also a different time. Books were, you know, there weren't things competing for our attention right. in the same way. Right. And, <laughs> there was, you weren't scrolling Instagram? Not at all. Nope. Nope. Couldn't even have imagined it. Right. Which I, I, you know, I realize I have a pile of books on my nightstand and every time I get in bed to read one of them, I pull out Instagram and it's a bad habit. It's a bad habit. And we, I mean, I think it, this is real. Even those of us who are good readers and mm-hmm. voracious readers don't read as much as we used to. No. I would rather turn on Netflix at the end of the day and I fall know. asleep than pick up a book. And that's not good. No, I agree. What, I guess, so what got you into, like, discovering and going into reading and and focusing on it and your work? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. It kind of depends on how far back we want to go, because as a reporter, (laughs) uh, one story leads to another, especially the kind of reporting I've been privileged to do um, for the last chunk of my career, which was all sort of long-form documentary kind of audio reporting. And um, so I think I can pinpoint it back to a project I did in 2016, which was actually about college students. And it was about the really remarkable percentage of college students, particularly at community colleges, but actually at all colleges, at our flagship state colleges, that end up in these remedial classes, remedial or developmental classes. And so it was really there talking to college students who were telling me about their reading problems. And one woman in particular who I had a really long interview with and told me about how she had dyslexia. And I didn't really know anything about dyslexia. I didn't think I knew anyone who had dyslexia. Mm. That's not true. We all know people (laughs) who have dyslexia. But she just told me sort of how she got through school without really being able to read and write much at all. She's pretty severe dyslexic. And I got really just interested in the question. I just got interested in dyslexia, learning disabilities in general, was just thinking about the situation this woman was in, which was in one of these remedial classes in college and a lot of people most people don't get out of those like they they're going to college they end up in one of those classes and they never get the degree that they went for so i i started with dyslexia because my sort of question was like what happened to this woman why didn't anyone identify that why didn't she get any help it was essentially something she had identified about herself she had just figured out that that was what was going on so that's really where it started and then it kind of, um, I went down a rabbit hole, and uh, six years later, I'm still on this topic. <laughs> a rabbit hole is a good reporter does. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of rabbit holes out there, but this was a particularly interesting one. So can you give us just a, an, a brief overview? I know this, it's a long podcast series. You should listen to series. You should listen to it at soldastory.org. But at a, at a high level, what, what's the crux here? So what happened when I did this, I did this reporting about dyslexia, and I kind of along the way discovered uh, all these other problems. So what I really realized, the big aha out of that reporting on dyslexia is a lot of kids are not being taught how to read in school. They're not being taught the things they know to become good readers, and it's having the biggest impact on kids with dyslexia. So we know that some of us are lucky enough to be born with brains that are just kind of almost wired to read. I mean, in fact, the big aha is none of us are born with brains that are wired to read, right? Mm. We actually invented reading and writing kind of recently as human beings. So our brains aren't really evolved to do it. Mm. Um, But some of us don't have a hard time sort of figuring out how this system works. But some of us do, and it doesn't have anything to do with intelligence, right? There are really, really smart people who struggle to learn how to read. And more than I realized, like this was a big, uh, I was like, oh, wow, there are a lot of people out there for whom this is really a difficult thing. 
So it started with dyslexia, but what I really realized is that at the core of the problem is like there's an instructional issue and kids with dyslexia are sort of like the canaries in the coal mine. Like they're the ones that are the most harmed when schools aren't teaching reading well, Um, but they're not the only ones, right? There are actually a lot of kids who aren't dyslexic, but this doesn't come very easily to them. And if you don't give them good instruction, they don't end up becoming very good readers or spellers in particular. So Sold a Story was really the culmination of several years of reporting on this, of doing some basic explanatory journalism just about reading and how it works and all this stuff that cognitive scientists have figured out about reading just over the past few decades. Because in fact, we've thought about how to teach reading for a long time in this country. But we sort of had an excuse, kind of, because we didn't really know how reading worked. We didn't really know, like, how do we even learn how to do that? Like, what is, what is reading? How do we do that? We've, scientists figured out a whole bunch of stuff. But what I realized is that schools still weren't teaching based on this uh, scientific research that's now decades old. So Soul to Story is really about that. And in fact, I'll just tell you this. Soul to Story is six episodes, four and a half hours of listening. And it's just about one idea. It's not about everything anyone needs to know about reading and how it works. But it's about this one idea that I just realized is... Um, deeply entrenched in American education. It's sort of like the water that everyone's been swimming in for a long time. And I think it's one of the reasons why what has been figured out about reading and how it works hasn't been able to take hold. Because there's this other idea that undergirds reading instruction. And the idea is that when little kids are learning how to read, they don't have to be taught how to sound out the words because there are other ways to figure out what the words are. They can sound them out. That's one thing you can do when you come to a word you don't know, when you're a little kid beginning to read, or even when you're an adult um, coming across a word you've never seen before, which happens to us all the time, mm-hmm. right? But the idea that sort of undergirds instruction is we don't have to teach kids the sort of specifics of how to sound out words, because that's just one strategy they can use to figure out a word. They can also do things like think of something that makes sense, look at the first letter, look at the last letter, look at the picture, and they can figure it out. And it turns out that that is exactly what people who have a hard time reading do. When we are teaching kids to use all those strategies to figure out the words, we are actually teaching them the habits of struggling readers. I think that's the part that stood out to me the most when I kind of listened to the podcast, because I kind of was sharing before I do have dyslexia and so when my parents first discovered when I was in kindergarten because we were sharing reading and all the other kids took a page and it got to me in my words none of the words I said were on the page but I just described the picture scene and then passed it on and my mom happened to be in the room and was like wait that wasn't didn't match at all and so that you know I fortunately was really lucky to get pulled out and got really solid phonics training but I think the key thing there is that it's not just this is another way of teaching that's more effective. It's that those habits are what poor readers do and are actually detrimental to that student's long-term reading growth. And also their self-confidence, happiness, love of reading, right? It really causes, they may be able to struggle to get it, but they're kind of always going to not build that love of reading. And that to me really stood out that it's if we really think about how to approach this with those two pieces. Absolutely. Yeah, so big, two big takeaways. It's not just it's not just the absence of something. So if, I think for a long time we saw this reading thing as as the absence of phonics instruction and it was that in a lot of cases we had big big dirty fights about phonics and whether to teach it. 
And what's happened is people have brought in a little bit of phonics instruction here and there, right? But still taught these other strategies. And it turns out that some kids will really stick with those habits if you don't really teach them how to read the words and tell them, no, 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 you've got to do this. And it's hard. It's hard for kids. Mm -hmm. Um, If you don't teach them how to do it, many of them will cling to those strategies. And that is one of the things that I hear from parents and teachers and reading tutors in particular who will get these kids in second, third, fourth, fifth grade. And what they say is the the first thing you got to do and the hardest thing to do is to break them of the bad habits of not looking carefully at the words and sounding them out because it turns out that this is how we become skilled readers. We eventually get to the point where the words aren't a problem for us, right? We just know almost all the words we see really quickly and really easily. And that's because at some point, we laboriously sound them out. It can be like nails on a chalkboard listening to a little kid sound out words, but they're connecting the sounds in the word with the spelling of the word and the meaning of the word. And when those three things get connected, your brain can remember that word and it's available to you instantly. All you have to do is connect those three things a few times and then that word is just there for you in an instant, for most people anyway. Some people with dyslexia have a very, this particular part of the process can be very hard and remembering all those words can be really hard and that's why often they can be slow readers, even if they learn how to read the words, it's a more laborious process for them. But my second, the second thing that I'd like to say about this is just think about when a child goes to school, they go off to kindergarten. There are really two main things that are being asked of them and they know it. One is just how to learn how to be in school, right? Get along with other kids and do school. And the other is learn how to read. That's the main thing you're trying to do. And many kids don't get off to a good start with it, and they know it right away. Mm. And they can sometimes keep it hidden from the teacher by being really good and articulate and being able to describe with the pictures. And unless the mom is there or someone is there noticing like, well, wait a minute, half of those words weren't words that were there. And that's what's happening. A lot of kids are fooling their teachers but they're not fooling themselves. They know they can't read. And this is a source of tremendous anxiety, shame, and fear. And that is the other thing that reading tutors, when they get these kids by third, fourth grade or adults, there's just a gigantic amount of anxiety and shame around this. And so that's just a big thing that's going on in our culture. Yeah, I thought about Dan's story, which is so powerful, right? An adult who struggled to read, went back, you know, got tutoring and was able to start a business because of it. And like hearing how you kind of asked him a question, like how would you have spelled calendar or said, said calendar planner before? And now how would you read calendar planner? And it was such a perfect example of kind of how this training can change how you approach new words and kind of think it through. And this goes back to what was so fascinating to me with this woman that I met that many years ago, because she was describing how she did it. And I was like, how does she do that? I just never thought about it. And it was that. It was like, you know, getting the gist of things, looking at the first letter, sort of figuring it out from context. But there's a tremendous amount of research that shows that you get things wrong a lot Mm -hmm. of times when you do it that way. And this really messes with reading comprehension, which is the goal, right? That's what we're trying to get all kids to. But there are fascinating research studies that show us that text gets more complex. You get into reading like science and social studies. You miss one or two words on the page and your whole idea of what is going on is totally different than what's really going on. And so reading becomes just confusing. And sometimes people don't even know that they're getting it wrong. And like, that, think just think about the impact of that. <laughs> think about the exponential situation yeah. of that. And we, you know, we had on Gary Cohn, who's a, a White House advisor, and he had dyslexia, and he talked extensively about how it was it was such a struggle for him, and 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 how he found ways to overcome it. And but he 
you know, he never had that teacher, I don't think, that really recognized what was going on that could really help him and, and help him along. He had to do it himself. And yeah. he was able to make it and become, you know, White House advisor, have a fantastic, amazing career. But there are so many people that I'm sure really where the system didn't, didn't get it done for them. I was going to say, because I think the other piece you bring up is that reading, learning to read is not a measure of your intelligence, right? Learning to read is just a skill that you need to be taught. You can be extremely intelligent and just not be fortunate to have the right type of reading instruction. And then that impacts your life ability. So if you're able to be lucky to have the right training, you know, that can unlock a lot of doors for you. And, you know, I think it was important this to be lucky and it's who, you know, who's lucky. So that's a big theme in the podcast, obviously, is I think what's happening is that in a lot of schools, kids are not being taught how to read. And some kids are lucky enough like you to have a parent who notices and who can do something about it, get the right kind of training on their behalf, go to the school to get to the help. In some cases, write the checks that get them the tutoring or teach the kids at home. But there's all kinds of kids who aren't lucky to be in families like that, right? Their parents don't actually know that they're really behind, right? Because they're good at faking it and they can show they don't know how much more behind or they don't know where they should be. There's a big gap in sort of the perception that parents have about where their kids are in reading and where many of them actually are. And then there's a whole bunch of kids who just aren't lucky enough to have a backup plan, which is a parent who can take care of the problem. So that was another theme that I was seeing and what led to Sold a Story is just a tremendous amount of private tutoring is going on. There's a privatization of this problem. And that's not public education, right? We got to teach all kids how to read so they all have a chance to succeed. And you're really just putting kids on, you're just crippling them right from the very beginning. If you're not giving them directly teaching them the skills that they need for this absolutely essential life skill and academic skill, right? That reading is the foundation upon which so many things are built. And if you want academic success, which is one of the things we know can really help lead to economic success in this country. Um, a good education, starting with learning how to read when you're five, six, seven years old, is critical. We're at the George W. Bush Institute, so be it, we have to ask. You know, obviously, what you just said, uh, we have to make sure all kids learn how to read. Is something that our boss, President Bush, says often. One of your the podcast episodes really focuses in on some of the the policies there. Can you talk some about that? Yeah, well, you know, we have tried um, many times in this country to. Uh, put in policies that would uh, both motivate or f- enforce changes in schools <laughs> right. and schools of education. And I will say this, I think, so, you know, one theme in Sold a Story is essentially for a lot of people, this is deja vu all over again. People are sort of talking about the so-called science of reading. They're like, oh, wait, I think we did that 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And we, we did. And it was President Bush who led that effort and really tried to figure out a way to get this knowledge and information to schools and to teachers. And I think one of the reasons we are able to have this conversation we're having about the science of reading today is because that happened. So some people will say, well, that failed. And on one measure that failed, it went away, Congress defunded it, it became very controversial. But there's also, I think, a certain level of knowledge within the system that exists because people really, there are still teachers in the system who learn, really learn something about how kids learn to read and how to teach it, and they still have their materials from reading first. Um, So I think that's really important. And I, you know, I think it takes a long time for science to make its way into practice in any field. So that's certainly one of the things that's happening in education. I mean, there are definitely forces of resistance. And that's part of what I've been interested in as as a reporter, like, wait, something seems to be resisting this information. 
But I think even in a perfect world, it just takes a long time for people to recognize that some some scientific findings might tell you something very different from what feels right in your gut or seems to be working, right? And I just, I think a lot of teachers are having a moment right now. And one of the reasons they're having a moment is because many of them had a feeling in their gut for a long time, like, mm, there's something not quite, quite right here. Or there were kids in their class like you, and they were like, oh, I'm not reaching that girl. I'm not reaching that boy. And, 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 and for some teachers, it's half the kids in their class. It's three quarters of the kids in their class. So when someone comes along and sort of helps explain this, they think, oh, that's it. Right. Right. What I've been doing is not exactly what these kids need. I need to be taking some things. Some, there's some things I'm doing I need to take away, and I need to add some stuff in. But I guess that's another big point of Soul to Story, and I think maybe one of the places that Reading First sort of ultimately maybe one of the one of the one of the problems or one of the places it went wrong is it became focused on sort of adding phonics without taking away this other idea that you don't actually have to you know not all kids need to use that phonics knowledge we can teach them all this other stuff so i feel like my reporting is training like okay there's some stuff we need to take away um, and we have to keep our, it's, this is not all about phonics. Often this right. gets reduced to phonics and it isn't. I mean, obviously to be a good reader, there's a lot more that's involved that has to do with like knowing the meaning of lots of words and being um, an under, you know, having the knowledge, the background knowledge to understand what you read. And I think there's a lot of work to be done in our schools about providing that kind of knowledge. I think the, the teacher element is, is it, 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 teacher, it's another reason why teachers are so under, underappreciated. I remember as a, I was in college and I taught, I was never a teacher, but I taught some batting clinics to kids who, and I remember most of the kids, like they're missing the ball and you give them a few tips. They start making contact, their timing gets better and so on. It's great. And I remember this one kid, uh, uh, he just could not, no matter what tools we gave him, could not make contact with the ball. So eventually he just went to the dad, like, look, maybe basketball is a sport. We can, we could, that kid didn't have to play baseball, but we really have to be able to read. And I gave up a teacher can't give up or they have to find a way. And and what do we need to be doing to help our teachers get there? Well, and that's actually an interesting analogy because it's true, you know, like this is true for all things, right? There are certain foundational skills that that you can teach someone and then some of us become much, much better at it than others. Some Mm -hmm. of us become great baseball players and others don't. But with baseball, you can be like, it's okay, honey, you don't need to be a baseball player. You can go do something else. But it is true that we all have to learn how to read. And that brings us back to dyslexia. There are some people who this is just actually not really quite the thing that they're good at. But I think that in the school system, we have sort of almost said that's okay somehow. Like, because what's really strange is we've had test scores that have shown us for a really long time that we have a glaring problem. But I actually think because in many schools, they have been working as hard as they can doing what they thought was going to help kids learn to read. And so many of them weren't that many people have said to me, we got to a point of thinking, well, I guess that's just the way it is. I guess maybe half of our kids are never going to be good readers. And I think we have to step back and be like, wait a minute. We actually know from a bunch of research back in the 80s and 90s that we actually can get the vast majority of kids to be pretty good at reading the words, which can get them to much better reading comprehension. It can be done. So we can't we can't do this thing where we're like, oh, right. it's too hard. And, you know, I it... It, it's doable. And I think a lot of teachers are starting to write, but it, but it, this is a hard problem. Uh, this is a hard problem and it's a messy world out there. And, um, you know, making schools are a gigantic system. It's hard to turn the ship. 
Well, I think it's a like thinking about the test scores and the reading kind of just showing that there's a glaring problem for a really long time. And then parents are now kind of for the first time because of COVID, who probably saw a lot of instruction happening at home, able to understand that test score a little bit more. Because I think you send your kid, you think you're you ask the surveys, right? Everyone thinks their kid is well above grade or at grade level or doing well because it's your kid and obviously you think that. And so hard to match up your perception to what kind of some of the results are coming back. But I think similar to teachers who have that gut feeling, some parents probably saw some of the instruction that was happening and also had a moment of, hmm, this doesn't feel quite right. And so there's two sides here that I think are starting to kind of raise awareness to the issue and, and ask some more questions around actually these test scores are probably really illuminating and we need to pay attention to them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think one of the, this started with dyslexia and there's definitely a movement of parents of kids with dyslexia who've been really organized and motivated about this because they're the kids who are really suffering the most, right? But I think one of the things COVID did is sort of invite in a wider swath of people and helped people see the connection between the instruction mm-hmm. and w- how their kids were doing. So I think rather than saying like, oh, there's something wrong with my kid, being like, wait, why is my kid being taught that yeah. way? And I think it's actually really a, like a powerful moment because I think a wider um, group of parents are sort of joining these parents of dyslexic kids who have sort of felt a little bit on their own for a long time. Um, and I, I was hoping that one of the things Sold a Story would accomplish is that I would not just get the letters from the mothers of the dyslexic kids, which I get all the time, but I would start getting letters and emails from the mothers of the kids who are doing fine and are like, oh, but there's a problem here. What can I do? Right. And I am getting that, you yeah. know, so that's hopeful. That it, I was going to ask kind of your, you know, the, the podcast came out a little bit ago and what have you seen, you know, from either parents or kind of larger happening in the, the policy scene that's giving you hope or getting you excited that maybe there's some possibility in the future? Well, there's certainly a lot of policy change going on. There are a lot of laws being passed and, you know, laws are blunt force instruments. And sometimes I think they're kind of a last resort. I think with this issue, they're sort of a last resort. So I'm you know, uh, cautiously optimistic, but also sort of a little anxious and nervous about all the legislative action out there. I think policy, I think change, hard change, is always some combination of sort of bottom up and top down. And I think there's been, you know, there was a lot of top down back in the reading first era. And top down gets a lot of reaction, right? Too much top down can be a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And so I think then I think we sort of moved away from thinking about K through two and reading for a long time, maybe partly because that was so hard. And oh my gosh, we had so many fights about that. Let's go focus on something else. And you can look at the trends in education policy, and you can see that's exactly what we did. We started to pivot more to the upper grades in preparation for college, which is why it's interesting that I started all of this at that at that question. Um, so I think what's happening, what's happened in recent years, is there's been a lot of bottom up. It's been a lot of parent advocacy, drawing in some teachers in many cases, sort of pushing up and looking up at their principals and superintendents and school boards and lawmakers and saying, we have a problem here, help us, help us. And now, I think partly because of this journalism, the people at the top, the lawmakers and the leaders are saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we we do have a problem. So they're passing laws. So it's some combination of these two. You know, when when a problem bubbles up, they need help from the top. But if it's too much top down, you get a lot of resistance. So it's just some, you know, we need some Zen kind of, you know, we know a little bit of both. And, you know, I'm hoping... I'm hoping because of everything that's happened before, because of the fact that I think that a wider group of people are aware and Mm -hmm. interested in this, um, 
and because it's really a multi-partisan issue. And, you know, this has gotten very much tied up with partisan politics and some strange ways over the years. But, you know, if you look at my Twitter feed, I've got people on the far right and the far left and everywhere in between. And I, I feel hopeful because I feel like the fact that it is so multipartisan will hopefully sort of temper it all and not allow it to become a right thing or a left thing that people who are like, well, that's not me, so I'm going to be against that, that that can't happen. You it's know? hard to argue against being able to read, right? It seems like it should be a pretty clear, we all agree that you go to school, you, you learn how to read, and you can then access a lot more opportunity. Right. And I think, I, mean, I think the problem is we all can't agree on that, but then <laughs> we all can't, no, I think we all can agree on that, but then right. what do you do, do about, about it? Yeah, that's the hard part. That's always the hard part. Yes. We can we can actually agree on a lot of our problems, but what do we do about them? Yeah, that's where we don't necessarily agree. Exactly. So uh, we have to ask, what's are you going to continue working on this, on this issue? Or are you looking at new projects? What's next for you? You know, I don't really know, but I would really like to continue working on this issue in some way. Yeah. I certainly, there's a there's themes to uh, questions I get in, me, in my email inbox. Certainly one of them is like older kids. That's a big one. What do you do about those middle school, high school adults? Right. Mm-hmm. I certainly get this question about math all the time. I sort of think maybe someone else should do that because I feel <laughs> like I'm interested in that one, but I actually feel like there's so much more, there's so many more questions to ask about this one and there's so much now to watch. Like there's so much happening now. So I feel like what my job needs to be is to document that and ask hard questions about it and also look for solutions. Like where are things working and where are they not? But also ask hard questions about things that are going on in the so-called name of the science of reading. I don't think, you know, I don't think we're ha- we have all great stuff going on in the name of the so-called science of reading. So we need some, we need some accountability. We need uh, people to be on the ground watching what's happening. And I'm really excited about the fact that there are a lot of other journalists who are interested in this topic now. So there's a lot of good coverage happening. Um, and and I, I think that's going to, journalism matters. I, yep, you've started a movement. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I I think it is carrying over to math. I think people are asking the same questions around how is math being taught? What is the instruction of math? We saw math take a huge hit with some of the test scores through COVID. So how do we teach math? I think that probably a lot of that came from your work around how do we teach reading too. And some of the same issues are at play. And I think some of it gets down to just the question of like little kids who go to school and how much do we want to directly teach them things and how much do we want to sort of let them discover things on their own? And this is where it becomes this sort of you know, between a sort of more traditional approach or a more progressive approach, but that's how I think it becomes political. And I do think if you look at the cognitive science research, we have a lot of good evidence that when it comes to foundational critical skills, there is a real important role for direct and explicit instruction with little kids. And it doesn't mean they have to be like sitting in rows and following rules. They can still go to recess and they can play and they can discover things on their own. But we really need to take this very seriously. This is a very serious thing we have to get right. And there's no reason why children should go to school and have to discover how to read on their own. It can be taught. It can be taught. And it should be taught. Well, our, our closing question that we always ask folks, well, it's one of two, and the one we've chosen for you is, uh, what are we not talking enough about as a nation that we should be talking about? We've kind of surprised you with this, so take a yeah, second. Yeah, I was going to say, we, wait a minute. Yeah, we didn't, we, we never, we never, uh, peeling the curtain back, we never and really I'm, shared And I'm supposed to say something else? You're supposed to say, well, you can, you can, you can, we can reinforce your earlier What are we not talking ideas. enough about? Yeah. This is your opportunity to say, this is, I really think this is important. Whatever yeah. this is. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Um... There are no wrong answers. Okay. It's just like there's either good answers or just sort of <laughs> lame answers. You know, uh, there, yes, there are, but, <laughs> you know, I'm, the, the breadth of possibilities for great answers is very wide. Yes, yes. 
I mean, I'm going to say such an obvious one, and maybe it's just because I'm sitting here at the Bush Center and I was just listening to some of the program. I just wish we could come to agreement on more things. It's just like things are so broken in our politics. And I am not sort of a political person, which I think is one of the reasons I went into journalism, sort of not a partisan person. Um, but it just, you know, there are it just waking up sometimes it, it's, it feels so broken, like, let's fix this. Yeah. So I don't know. That's what I mean. Anyone and everyone. That's a lame answer. Not at all. We all. But it is the most important thing. It is. We all want. We all want what's best for our country, and what's best for the world. And we can all. We need to figure out a way to disagree passionately, but not demonize. Yeah, not not break things down. Like let's come on. Let's uh, and let's recognize the things that aren't broken and right. build on that. Build on that. And work together. <laughs> yeah. And and we th- oh, oh can I ask a ra- uh, can I throw off your last question really Please, quick with don't my keep going. So I've grown into an avid reader even though through all of this. And, Yay! Um, I'd love to know what you're reading right now as yeah. someone who focuses on reading. It's a great question. Um you know, I actually just got from the library yesterday or two days ago, this book called The Passion Economy by Adam Davidson, who I worked with years ago. He's the fa- co-founder of the Planet Money podcast. And I listened to this um, fascinating podcast that he was on called, it's called Other People's Pockets. And it's about how much people, money people make and they get on and they talk really oh, interesting. openly. Yeah, it's fascinating. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So he was talking about his book. Um, and so I just got his book and I have it on the plane. But since my plane this morning was at 5 a.m., I immediately fell asleep. So I haven't yet written, <laughs> list, I haven't read a word, but I'm going to read it on the plane on the way home. Well, I will check both the podcast yeah, I mean, and the book out. <laughs> Thank you for the recommendation. I'm very interested in that because that is that's actually a fairly new phenomenon. It used to be, you know, previous generations would never talk about what they made, and I think this generation we're we're much more open about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's sort of one of the things. You know, that, that's one of the questions that get at, gets asked. Like, what was the role about money when you were growing up? Did people talk about it? And it, but it is sort of like bringing out these secrets. It does feel like sometimes people's deepest, darkest thing. You but re- you know, it only it, it only helps each other when when you know, like there's. I, this is fast. I could talk for another hour just about this subject, yeah. but if we want you to enjoy the rest of the formal leadership, Emily, thank you again for, for coming on and, and we hope you continue this work. And it, we, we really appreciate it, which is obviously why you're here and receiving the, the Bush Institute citation today. And we're, thank you for spending the time here with us this morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Learn more about the forum on leadership at bushcenter.org slash forum on leadership. Listen to the Sold a Story podcast at soldastory.org and read Emily's reporting at apmreports.org reading. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Let us know what you think on social media at The Bush Center on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening.